Hi everyone, my name is Max Strauss and today I will be discussing just voting during a pandemic. So currently the United States and quite frankly everyone in the world is going through the COVID-19 pandemic and this is a time of major uncertainty and unprecedented moments happening every single day. Many of us don't have never been through this. Um, the last time this has happened was probably in 1907-1908 with the Spanish flu. But in recent American history, this has never really happened. And there's a lot of things at stake. Um, I don't want to discount it, but, you know, families are being lost and people um, are losing their jobs. And there's just a lot of worry around the world right now. And one of those worries is probably on a lot of people's minds, especially politicians, is how is the November 2020 election going to look? You know, there's been a lot of buildup to this election with this um being named one of the most historic and influential elections in modern American history. And there's been a lot of excitement around this, and this has been a long time coming. You know, Democratic candidates announced their campaigns a year to two years ago already. And here we are finally, now we have it down to basically Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and who's going to be elected in 2020. Another aspect of this is that many of us at Southeast are 18 or just or are turning 18 and we'll be able to vote in the in our first presidential election come November. However, we don't really know exactly how that's going to look. You know, is it going to be all mail-in ballots? Are we going to be required to do um, in-person voting? Is it going to be just automatically mailed to us or will we have to request an absentee ballot? A lot of this stuff was tested during the Nebraska primary, which occurred on Tuesday, May 11th. Um, there's a huge increase and in success rate with absentee ballots. However, polling places were still open, but who knows, are these, is this still going to be the case around the United States? Is coronavirus still going to be around? Um, whether or not it's going to be around, it's been affecting um, campaigns since it started this in March. You know, Politicians have not been able to have their rallies and town halls, and they've had a major disconnect with the citizens and that this has never really happened before before an election how consequential is this going to be for either joe biden or donald trump you know we don't really know any of this um both have tried to do some town halls online or in person um with other news networks and some a few of them have been successful and you know some citizens have been able to ask their candidates some questions however we don't really know exactly how this will fully impact um the election in November until that happens. So today I just kind of wanted to explore how voting during a pandemic is going to work. You know, I already touched on it, but is it going to be absentee ballots? None of us really know the answers, but you know, we can explore some options. I just really wanted to do this because I, for one, am also 18 and we are just going to be voting in the first presidential election. And it, while it is a ma massively consequential election, it's important that we all maintain our right to vote that we are granted. So today we will be going over an interview that I had with Mr. Dave Peters. He is a social studies teacher at Southeast. Um, and following that, I will be uh, reading a statement that Kate Bowles' campaign provided. Kate Bowles is running for the first congressional district in Nebraska. Um, she is a Democrat running against Republican Jeff Fortenberry, um, who's also the incumbent. And she's had... Um, quite a bit of success with her campaign um, compared to previous Democrats that have run. So we will get to that. Um, but first, let's get right into the interview with Mr. Dave Peters. I will be um, stopping and interjecting some commentary uh, every so often when 
he brings up an interesting point or points that deserve elaborating. So enjoy the interview. My name's Dave Peters, um, social studies teacher at Southeast High School for the last 25 years. Um, I teach AP Human Geography, U.S. History, and Government and Politics. Awesome. So um, you do teach government and politics. And another thing that I noticed that you did this year is that you were in charge of the voter registration drive um, for students. Um, so where does your passion and longing for um, students being um, civically active come from? Well, um, I think probably most social studies teachers uh, geek out on this sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, because I uh, was blessed to grow up in a really strong community and had really good experiences in the public schools and in Lincoln neighborhoods, I came to appreciate the, the value of strong communities. And so my interest in engaging young people or any citizen in the process um, is based on uh, commitment to strong communities, community values. So we want full participation for that to happen. Right. Um, so like full participation is something that the United States has always struggled with. We've always kind of had a low voter turnout. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, uh, yes, we are clearly not among the world leaders in democratic participation, um, for as much as we pat ourselves on the back. Um, and I think that there are kind of a couple, uh, main reasons, or at least groups. There are those for whom voting has been made more difficult, and there are those who are just disengaged, right? Yeah. Um, the first group, we unfortunately have a long tradition of suppressing and disenfranchising uh, voters, whether it was Jim Crow era, mm -hmm. um, poll taxes or literacy tests or uh, intimidation, um, you know, in communities. Uh, or more modern um, examples, people are still being, you know, prevented from voting today uh, by making voter registration more difficult or actually uh, voting itself more difficult, whether mm -hmm. it is that it's hard to get off work um, to vote or if you have to stand in a long line right. to vote or if your name has been purged from the voter rolls. Um, right. These yeah. roadblocks uh, or barriers have affected poor people and people of color for generations in our country. And while there has been some improvement, there has also been some backsliding there. Mm -hmm. So um, that is uh, one thing, you know, one challenge to address uh, the institutional racism or uh, whatever, you know, is at the basis of, of those um, problems. The other group, I'm not sure I'm the one to speak for, right? People who are mm -hmm. disengaged, unfortunately, that is often uh, young people or the biggest age group. Um, but again, I, I don't think those reasons are as good yeah. um, to not be voting, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, general lack of education or a general distrust of government. Again, it's, it's hard for me to 
to speak to that, I, I get that our politics are polarized and nasty, and it's um, it's not necessarily fun to participate. But um, you know, I wish I saw um, a greater commitment from the broader middle there, who is just sort of maybe blowing it off. Right. So what can be done to encourage these young voters or just people that are very disengaged? You know, um, I was at work on Tuesday, I was talking and asking who went out and voted and a lot of people didn't because they were just unaware of the one, the gravity of the election. You know, this is, it's a primary, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. And then two, they just also weren't very informed on um, most of the candidates. So what are some ways that young people can become more engaged and, um, you know, just so they are able to get out and vote? Yeah. Um, there again, I th- that's a great question. I think there's kind of two ways to approach that. What are the sort of institutional, uh, you know, the process or logistical things that we can change at the state and local level or at the federal level to make voting easier. You know, some states do an automatic voter registration when you get your driver's license, you're automatically registered. Um, Some states are doing 100% mail-in ballots now where you don't even have to request the ballot that it automatically goes to your house and you just send it in. Um, they're showing really good, you know, improvement in voter turnout or participation through mail-in ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, extending early voting periods, uh, reducing gerrymandering, and, and therefore partisan polarization. Mr. Peters brings up a really interesting point about gerrymandering. So, at its core, gerrymandering is when states redistrict their congressional districts in order to favor one political party or another. Um, states are in charge of redistricting, and they tend to do so after a major census comes out. The So the Constitution lines out a couple criteria that the districts have to meet. So in Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, district um, states that districts must be nearly equal in population, And then the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment um, says that districts cannot in any way like be discriminatory towards any race or ethnicity. Um, And then also there's just some principles that also that states also have to follow when making their districts. So it has to be compact so it can't be stretched out a long ways. Um, Contiguity. So that means that it can't be disconnected at any point. It has to be one flowing district. And then... um, just some other ones are like preservation of counties and other political subdivisions and preservation of communities of interest, preservation of cores of prior districts, and they want to avoid pairing incumbents. Um, so then that would screw up the upcoming elections. So gerrymandering has been an issue in the United States for quite a while. So if we go back to 1993, um, there's a Supreme Court case called Chauvey, Reno, where North Carolina... Um, was redistricting and they made a district that snaked throughout the whole entire state. Um, And that one district was a majority of African-Americans. And their intent to do that was so that African-Americans can gain an advantage, well, not necessarily an advantage, but fair representation in their government. However, that was declared um, unconstitutional because that district was not compact and at times um, like I said it was literally just like a snake through North Carolina and at times it was literally no wider than a highway like an interstate it was super 
super narrow, probably 50 feet across at some points. Um, and that just didn't meet the criteria that it had to. So that was when um, racial redistricting or racial gerrymandering was outlawed. And then also in 2011, um, in Wisconsin, they just came out with the 2010 census so they were redrawing their districts and they gerrymandered them in order to favor republicans and that the republicans gained about 60 percent of representation in their government while only gaining about 46 percent of the vote so that just goes to show that gerrymandering can really influence the way that government is run and an issue that probably is continuing to be solved um, every year in the political system um, a lot of those things would improve turnout. The problem with many of those is that currently Republicans oppose many of those measures on grounds that they say um, either or both because of voter fraud, right? The easier mm -hmm. we make it for people to vote, they would argue the more likely there, is, there would be uh, cheating. Right. Um, but Republicans have also said out loud now, um, even all the way up to the president himself, that uh, that they know increased voter turnout helps the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so that's especially discouraging or uh, concerning or dangerous when you have the prospect of one of the major parties um, uh, that might not want full voter participation, right? right. And then that might help explain uh, some of the politics that we have with regard to our, our voting laws. Um, so the other, the other side of that, again, how do we improve turnout on the, you know, sort of the um, individual level? How do we motivate people, especially young people? Mm -hmm. um, I... I wish I had all the answers there if there yeah. was a silver bullet, but um, it starts in, in families and in schools and rebuilding that sense of uh, community, I think, and understanding that, yes, we, we all want to be individuals, but we do have to accept some basic responsibilities to shape um, you know, our country, to maintain right. the quality of life that we want to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with young people in particular, I stress that you have the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Your generation, like millennials and Generation Z, these are the biggest um, age groups in the country right now. And I have lived my entire life under kind of the shadow of the baby boomers, right? Being right. the most dominant voting block. Mm -hmm. And... Um, right now, whether it's 2020 or it's 2024 or whatever, that um, demographics are changing quickly. Right. And if the young people showed up, uh, had turnout numbers the same as the baby boomers or older age groups, they would control policy and they could shape the future of our country. So, yeah. you know, I just want young people to understand their own power um, you know, I get that they're frustrated with the system, uh, with the two-party system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get that young people might not like, let alone be in love with either of the candidates, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes down to that. But I, I don't get that that's an excuse to disengage 
um, you know, you the, the ideologies of the parties and the general trends and patterns. If you read a little bit, um, um, it's not hard to find which um, of the two parties uh, represents your general views more than the other. So, yeah. it's definitely an interesting point. Is that um, many young voters don't like to align with the two major political parties, either the Democrats or Republicans. However, um, a lot of people just end up going with what the majority of their political views are um, with one party. And an easy way to find that out is that there's this website called isidewith.com. And if you head to there, you'll just take a quick, maybe 10 minute survey and I'll lay out where you lay on the political spectrum. And if you lean more conservative or liberal and what party you align with more and what candidates you align with more. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Uh, maybe that's the single biggest thing is uh, good citizenship, good voter, you know, um, informed voters need to read, um, I would say, multiple sources. If you're not reading one hour of news a day, and I'm not talking about sports or entertainment news, mm -hmm. but hard news every day from a variety of sources, it's, it's going to be hard. You know, you don't right. step in at, at 18 and you're ready to vote. It's a cumulative process where every year you become a more informed voter yeah. and hopefully it never stops. But, but people who, you know, are confused because they don't understand, you know, that's maybe they're watching too much TV where all they get is the, he said, she said version yeah. of, you know, and they don't, uh, I think the print media, um, again, if you're a little bit devoted to that, you can figure this out by the time you're 18 and mm -hmm. be an informed voter. Yeah, I think you said a really interesting thing is um, to find multiple sources because we know that there are some biases in several news outlets. So I think it is also important to find multiple and not just try not to just stick to one single source um, for news. So then you're better Absolutely. informed. Um, yeah, so you briefly touched on it, but you said that some um, states and districts are moving to all mail-in voting. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously during this pandemic, that's very difficult for some people to get out and vote. Um, and because of their um, health reasons, or there's a thousand other reasons. Um, but do you think that mail-in voting is um, a potential way to go in come November in the general election? Um, yes, I think so. So right, Nebraska just had... Um a really successful mail-in campaign for a primary election where we shattered uh, prior records of, you know, primary, um, camp primary election turnout. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think 80% of those were mail-in ballots, they said. Wow. So, um, I think it's probably going to have to be a mix. Uh, I like... Um, the paper ballot, anytime there's a paper trail, whether you mail that in or whether you go in and fill it out in person, um, to have a physical record, I think is extremely important. And a lot of states don't do that now. It's all computer. And of course we have seen, we know that our, these systems are, um, capable of being hacked, uh, and so I, I, I worry when there's not a paper trail. Um, mm -hmm. Nebraska still uses the good old, you know, number two pencil or fill out the ovals. 
and we can go back and count and recount those. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to see any changes going forward um, that they would involve a paper trail of some kind. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of concern about the upcoming elections, not just um, in terms of the logistics of how it will be carried out safely and how will security be maintained, um, but will the results then be respected? Right. Um, and will we have confusion or chaos? Will it go back to the courts? You know, we've seen that in the past. Uh, in 2000. So when I was talking about 2000, I was referencing the 2000 general election, which was George W. Bush versus Al Gore, um, Al Gore being the Democrat and George W. Bush being the Republican. And that election was extremely close. So it all came down to one state, Florida. Florida was the last state to report their results, and they, Florida would have awarded the winner 25 electoral college votes, which would there in turn give them the presidency. A candidate needs 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. And in Florida, it was extremely close and it could not be determined on the night of November 7th. So it came down and there are multiple news networks reporting a different winner because it was 48% to 48%. Um, And one news network was saying George W. Bush won and then the other one was saying Al Gore won. And after the end, at the end of the night, it was determined that George W. Bush won, but only by 1,100 votes-ish. And then that was close enough to spark an automatic recount um, with the ballots. And then after that recount, the margin of victory became even narrower with only about 300 votes. And they, these recounts just kept going and going. And every time there was a recount, it would just become narrower and narrower of a victory. So after these, there... Each party sued the state in order to stop or keep the recounts going, um, and eventually this made its way to the Supreme Court in the case known as Bush, Bush v. Gore. Um, this was decided in on December 12th um, of 2000, and the Supreme Court said that Florida has to stop the recounts, and the last recount had George W. Bush winning, therefore he won the election, winning all the electoral votes. So how does this apply to 2020? Well, it shows that Florida is a battleground state, meaning that either a Democrat or a Republican candidate can win it. Um, it's traditionally always been a Democrat, or a, sorry, excuse me, a battleground state. And that's no different for the 2020 election. Florida may or may not be the deciding factor, again, when it comes to Donald Trump um, or Joe Biden. Um, and then another aspect of um, the 2000 election that is still present in the 2020 election is that many states still use paper ballots. Um, and the whole issue here was the, there was like a little hole punch that would dangle off the ballot and do we count that as a vote or not? And um, while that's not the same for every state, um, paper ballots are still in use in the 2020 election in many states. And especially if we transition to all mail-in voting, which California actually has already done, um, then this question of paper ballots and recounting is going to become maybe become an issue again in 2020. Um, another thing that could result of this is that we could not know who's president um, for days, weeks, or months even after the election. Um, again, this election in 2000 wasn't even decided until December 12th. So um, a little bit over a month after the original election, it wasn't even decided who was president. Um, and this could very well happen if many states decide to do mail-in voting. So California, when they had their primary this March on March 3rd and Super Tuesday, 72% of their votes were mail-in ballots or absentee ballots. 
And that is a obviously a super majority of people that voted via mail-in ballot. And the final results for that primary were not known about two and a half weeks after the primary was actually held. While it was known that Bernie Sanders was favored to win the California primary, it wasn't exactly known how many delegates are going to go to each candidate. Um, that wasn't decided until about March 20th when 98% of the ballots and precincts were reporting. Um, so like I said already, California is already um, committed to sending every eligible voter a mail-in ballot, and many other states are more than likely to jump on this um, mail-in ballot idea, and this could very well be how we end up voting in 2020. You know, um, we didn't see that with the Nebraska primaries or many other primaries throughout the country, but who knows, that could very well change um, come November. You know, this coronavirus pandemic is changing every single day and every single week, and it's shaping how just our lives are functioning. And, you know, who, no one can really know what um, is going to happen in the next um, couple of months leading up to the general election. And then another thing is that we might not even know who wins um, until a month or so after or a couple of weeks after. That could be um, crazy if you think about it, you know. The inauguration generally happens on January. It will happen on January 20th, whether it is Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And we might not know who is going to be the one inaugurated until after that. Um, there could be many court cases like this that the different campaigns um, are fighting to keep recounts going or stop recounts. Um, there could be a ton of recounts throughout all the states, not just one state like we saw in 2000. You know, this situation is just very interesting to so just think about all the things that may or may not happen come 2020 right and so uh you know in 2016 we had a, a winning president claim that there was widespread voter fraud you know mm -hmm. and formed a committee of course found no evidence to support that claim but it makes you wonder that uh you know if president trump claimed then as the winner you know what he might do um if he were to lose and uh you know what that looks like um i think that historians and uh voting rights people all over the world are maybe a little nervous about that today yeah for sure um it is important to protect the integrity of the elections so then yeah we know that it's all fair and um yeah. So is there anything special about Nebraska voting that you wanted to touch on, such as, you know, we have closed primaries, which we saw on Tuesday, which meaning that if you register as a Democrat, you only um, vote in the primaries for Democratic candidates and then vice versa. If you vote for if you register as a Republican, you only vote for Republicans or um, the fact that we can split our electoral college votes. Um, is there anything that you want to clear up for new voters um, that may or may not be confused on these? Uh, yeah, I, I think Nebraska has a lot of interesting, you know, political uh, features that make it unique among states. Um, and one of the more confusing ones is, uh, again, the, well, nonpartisan nature of our legislature, but also when we register students to vote, um, understanding how a primary election works. And if you only get to vote in a closed primary, um, right. It's my understanding that the uh, Democratic primary is open in Nebraska, has been maybe since 2014 or 16, but the Republican primary is closed. Gotcha. Um, um, 
those, uh, you know, that having the top two in a certain race, like, so the district 29 where I live and where school is located Mm -hmm. uh, for our state legislature was a really deep field, uh, really, uh, I don't know, several qualified candidates this year. And, uh, you know, their party affiliation wasn't listed on the ballot Hmm. and so we you know if you read about them you can know which what they're running as but it doesn't show on the ballot and so the top two that are advancing you know jacob campbell and elliot bostar those did those are one republican and one democrat but uh that was just chance it could have been two republicans or two democrats so that's that's interesting i think um you know, the most interesting thing, I guess, about Nebraska, the unicameral government is how simplified it is. And mm-hmm. I think that works in a small state like Nebraska to reduce the redundancy and perhaps mm, partisanship um, by doing that. Yeah. Um, splitting our electoral vote, I think, is a great way to go. And I think if more states did that, we would have less likelihood of um, the popular vote and the electoral college winner being different. Yeah. Uh, so again, Mr. Peters brings up a great point. Um, he was talking about how traditionally not always the person that received the most votes in election has always become president. Um, this has happened on uh, five separate occasions, first starting with the election of 1824, Um, which has also been deemed the corrupt bargain. Um, It was between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson were the two front runners. There were other candidates, however, um, those were the two most prevalent um, candidates. And Andrew Jackson actually got the popular vote and the most electoral college votes, but not the majority. And there's actually a article in the constitution that states that if this happens, um, if nobody gets the majority of the electoral votes then the house of representatives gets to decide who the president is, and they decided on John Quincy Adams, even though he had received less electoral votes and less popular votes. Um, the second time this happened was in the election of 1876. It was between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel J. Tilden. And Tilden had won the popular vote, and Hayes had gained the majority of the electoral college votes. Um, but that was only through a deal where um, they agreed the government agreed to remove troops from the South after the Civil War. So this was therefore ending Reconstruction and... Um, This is when the South became more um, racist and more racist laws were implemented as a result of the troops being removed. And Hayes also promised to only only serve one four-year term as president. Um, The third time was the election of 1888. It was between Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harris. Um, Again, Cleveland received 90,000 more votes than Harris. However, Harris won the election due to having more electoral college votes. And then again, the elect in the 2000 election, we just discussed this not too long ago. Um, Al Gore did have more votes than George H W or George W Bush, excuse me, um, but Bush had majority of the electoral college. And most recently, in the last election, the 2016 election um, versus Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, um, Clinton had received almost three million more votes than Trump. However, um, Trump had more electoral votes again. Um, all this to say that the Electoral College is a very heated debate, continues to go on in politics, um, whether there's been talk of abolishing it or keeping it or revising it. Um, and this is just a very heavily debated topic in politics today.
Um, so that's a definite long-term problem that we would need that I think needs to be addressed. Um, um, the fact that we are still all on paper in Nebraska mm-hmm. is a, is a good thing. Um, and I, I don't know, I think one thing I try to stress in GoPo, um, that people, I know people, I know adults who don't even really understand or appreciate this, but the, um, longest slate of candidates, I think on the ballot, uh, this week was for Nebraska public power district. Hmm. And that uh, so many Nebraskans don't understand or appreciate that we have a public utility, all of our electricity statewide, and we're the only state in the country who does this. It is publicly owned, and we elect leaders to decide what type of infrastructure we're going to build and what are the rates that are going to be charged and how much renewable energy are we going to seek versus how much coal versus how much natural gas. And of course, you know, Lincoln Electric System, the subsidiary of NPPD has regularly the highest efficiency and satisfaction ratings in the country and lowest rates you know we are always top five top ten in the country and so um, you know when i see something like that um i see that's local government that works right we've taken out the private sector middleman we enjoy highest reliability ratings and cheapest rates that's good government right and you could also say well this is this is a public ownership um, is this what socialism looks like? Mm-hmm. Okay. And talk to your friends and family in California or Illinois or New York and ask them about their reliability or satisfaction with their electricity and compare the rates that they're paying. Um, and I think if we paid more attention to that and thought, gosh, well, if we like our electricity, I wonder what public internet would look like, right? Yeah or public health care or whatever um, industries that we are all sort of dependent upon on um, you know to what degree do we want the government uh, managing these things in, in the case of Nebraska electricity I think it's doing a pretty good job sure. yeah um, so what is your message to new voters or particularly Southeast students on voting well, um, I would just say there's never been a more exciting or important time in history, probably, to be tuned in. You know, I apologize mm-hmm. that you're entering an era where it's probably confusing and there's a lot of misinformation. And on the one hand, maybe it's harder than ever to to know what to believe. But again, at the same time, I think we can figure these things out and you have never been more needed to participate in your community. Um, And again, I would just stress that uh, you have the power to shape the future with the numbers. Um, You have strength in numbers, the young people. Also, I think of Lincoln as a, a battleground place. Um, we've got a lot of interesting local politics and, um, uh, yeah, the mayor was the mayor. Um, she's a Democrat, which is, um, interesting in a traditionally red state, you know, Lincoln's becoming more and more of a purple district. Right. Right. Uh, maybe even a blue town in a red state. Right. 
Um, and you see that play out a lot of uh, different ways. Um, and, and we see a lot of that. Again, that's a theme or a pattern we see all across the country in the urban areas. The urban versus rural divide is becoming more and more partisan and more obvious. Mm-hmm. So the Nebraska state legislature is split also about 50-50 with Lincoln and Omaha representing the urban and much of the state, small town and rural voters. So yeah. um Southeast Lincoln, uh, you know, overlaps several legislative districts, all of which are competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, it's a good time to get involved is what I would tell the young people. For sure. Um, well, lastly, is there anything that um, we haven't touched on that you would like to say or add to our conversation? Um, well, I would say I am... Um, hopeful and heartened um, by what I have seen. I I told you I've taught for 25 years. And I'd say in the last five or 10, I have seen, even though maybe the, well, since 2008, we have seen the youth vote improving. And I've seen it in the classroom. I've seen greater interest from students, I think, more and more each year. Mm -hmm. So whereas, you know, the numbers may not show a huge um, change in participation rates yet, I am hopeful that um, young people today are, that they know that their generation is going to be called upon to, to solve some problems and challenges. And I think... Um, Because of sharp students like you, Max, and I'm pretty confident in the young people. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's all I had for you today. So thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we'll get to meet again sometime if I ever come back. You bet, Max. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good luck. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you, Mr. Peters, for that interview and taking time out of your day to help me with my podcast. Really appreciate it. So next, I want to talk about Kate Bowles, and Kate Bowles is currently a state senator in Nebraska, and she's running for Nebraska's first congressional district uh, for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. She's running against incumbent Republican Jeff Fortenberry, um, who is the eight-term congressman that has held that seat. And she is a Democrat, obviously, since she's running against a Republican, and she's been able to gain some significant ground um, against Fortenberry. So just in the last... um, just up to this date, she has raised $285,048, and that is the most that any potential opponent of Fortenberry has raised in the last 14 years, according to an article from the Omaha World Herald. Um, that's very impressive, um, but compared to her opponent, um, Barbara Ramsey, who uh, raised $5,721, she is doing making a significant dent in the ballot for come November. Um the Nebraska 1st Congressional District has not sent a Democrat to the House since the late 1960s. So that just goes to show how red Nebraska really is. Red state meaning that most of the Republicans are elected and um, appointed to positions. So I reached out to her campaign earlier this week and I just asked, what is your message to new voters? And um, this is what her campaign said, quote, my first message would be to new voters is this, you matter. Your votes matter, your participation matters, and your ideas matter. 
Democracy continues on because people in every generation believe in it, commit their time and energy to it, and keep the ideals of fairness and opportunity alive. Second, as you vote this year, please consider a few things. One, please consider the best in Nebraskans as you cast your votes. Please don't vote based off on fear or anger. Vote based on who you believe will make your community most like the one you want to live in. Two, please vote for leaders up and down the ballot. You want a say in the school board that sets your school budget, the city council member that makes decisions about parks and recreation, and everyone else. Local elections can be impacted by even a small number of votes. Third, voting isn't the end. Follow your leaders on social media. Call, email, and attend events. A personal connection goes a long way, regardless of your age or interest or background. Use your voice, end quote. Thank you, um, Senator Bowles, for that um, awesome quote and message to young voters. So yeah, she touched on a couple interesting things. So she said that we should vote up and down the ballot. And that's a great reminder that the president isn't the only thing on the ballot um, come November. We have the president, the Senate seat, um, the House seat, and many other local elections that are being held. Um, she talks about the school board and uh, Mr. Peters talked about the LES board. Um, so yeah, definitely take into consideration those because she is right. With a smaller population, your vote matters even more than it does in the general election. Um, Kate Bowles is definitely someone to keep an eye on in November. Um, she's a major contender to overturn the eight-term Republican Jeff Fortenberry. Um, again, like the Omaha World Herald article said, this hasn't been done since um, the late 1960s, um, since Nebraska is a red state. So that's going to conclude my podcast today on voting during a pandemic. So again, we're in these very unprecedented times, and America in recent history has never really had to go vote during a pandemic. We will see how this all turns out come November, but for now, it's mostly just speculation, and we can only hope that this is all resolved by November.